Well, this morning, uh, we are going to be taking a break from John, and we are going to be springboarding into another little mini-series here on fighting the fear of man, if it comes up. You'll remember last week, we were um, in John 5, we finished John chapter 5, and that chapter ended with the unbelief of the Jews, right? And... Jesus is presenting himself as the Son of God. He's showing that it's, it's plain how the Father's testified to him over and over and over again. And yet they don't want to come to him. Well, what is at the root of this desire against Christ? Well, Jesus drills down and shows them that it is their love for the praises of men. Jesus said, I came in my Father's name. I always seek the glory of my Father. Um, I'm always seeking his approval, his praise towards me. And it was that character of Christ which actually repelled the people. They were exposed by him. And have that kind of Messiah would require humility on the part of his followers. It would require repentance on the part of his followers. And Jesus said, you will actually receive and flock to Messiahs who come in their own name. Because they don't, they don't expose you. They don't convict you. They don't demand that kind of discipleship from you. Um, and so what I want to do now is just sort of take a break. We're at a really good spot. Just finished chapter 5, and before we jump into John 6, and do this little mini-series, maybe two or three weeks, on, on the fear of man, on, on pleasing people. Um, and we're going to hopefully this morning see why it is such an important topic uh, for us and hopefully see um, some evidences of it in our, in our lives. Um, it's a temptation that's rooted deeply in every one of us. I see it all over the place in my, in my life. And as new creatures in Christ, we are enabled and we are commanded to not let man-pleasing reign in our lives. Um, so my goal in this mini-series is going to be to help us just understand what it means um, to fear man, what it does not mean to fear and please man, why is it a dangerous sin? Uh, and then I want to help us learn how to identify it in our lives and then equip us to make war against it. Um, so I hope it's going to be a, a helpful little, little mini-series. It's been helpful for me as well. Before we dive in, I did want to make you aware of a couple resources here. Um, I'm standing on the shoulders of both of these guys. You'll be able to see that this morning. The first is by Lou Priolo. He was here a few years ago um, at the uh, Biblical Counseling Conference called Pleasing People. Helpful little book. Um, really convicting, as all of these are. Um, so get it if you have not read it. It's very helpful. Um, Lou is very practical. The other um, is about, step back another, 400 years ago. Richard Baxter, uh, contemporary with... John Owen, maybe a little bit later, um, he has a, a, a larger work called A Christian Directory. And biblical counseling did not begin with the biblical counseling movement or Jay Adams. Richard Baxter is a biblical counselor. He is a, a master in taking God's word and applying it to practical issues of our, of our lives. This is what the Christian Directory does. And this is a small section entitled, a full title, nice Puritan title, Directions against inordinate man-pleasing, or that overvaluing the favor and censure of man, which is the fruit of pride and a great cause of hypocrisy, or directions against idolizing man. 
So that is the title. Um, really helpful. Uh, and I'll be quoting him a bunch as we go. I made about eight of these little booklets. If you want one, uh, you can have one. And if I run out, I'll make some more. Um, very helpful little, little booklets. So I'm standing on the shoulders of, of these guys this morning. Um, and uh, hopefully it will be as beneficial to you as it was me this week. So let me pass out the outline and we will get started. Uh, the outline is really for your own benefit to take home and review um, and uh, jot down stuff as we go. But I would like some interaction this morning. I'll try to open up for some questions. But I got a lot of content. So if I uh, keep going, uh, stop me. Slow me down, raise your hand, uh, interject something or I may, um, may forget. Pass those out. First thing I want to ask while you're handing those out is why is this an important topic? Why even discuss this this morning? Fearing man pleasing people. First reason is because as sinners, these cravings are deep within us all. We just heard from the Baxter. Uh, title he gave to it. It's rooted in pride. It's a fruit of pride. We know the core of our sinfulness and of our sin nature is pride, right? So it's deeply rooted in us. Even as new creatures in Christ, we're, we're, we're free from its dominion, but we got a war now to wage. Number two, it is because we live our lives around others who have personal opinions, desires, wants, and selfish, selfish expectations. And if we are not careful, our preoccupation, that's a key word, our preoccupation can become living up to the expectations and pleasures of those around us more than God. Number three, why is this an important topic? It's because we live in an ever hostile world to Christ, his word, into holiness. Listen to how Richard Baxter um, speaks on this point. He says, You must be counted as Lot among the Sodomites, a busy fellow that comes among them to make himself their judge. That's what they accused him, remember? And to control them if you tell them of their sin. This is amazing. He's writing this 500, 400, 400 500 years ago. You shall be called a precise, hypocritical coxcomb. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you know what a coxcomb is. Apparently it's the hat a uh, jest, uh, jest would wear. You know, the funny little hats. <laughs> or something much worse. I think we get something much worse today. If you will not be as bad as they. And if by your abstinence, though you say nothing, you seem to reprehend their sensuality and contempt of God. Among bedlams, you must play the bedlam. If you will escape the fangs of their revivals. And can you hope to please such men as these? Mm -hmm. Today you'll be called things like a bigot or out of date, out of line with modern society, on the wrong side of history, an enemy of progress. Your beliefs will be called dangerous. You'll be accused of hate speech. How will you respond? What will govern you in those moments? Will it be a desire for God's opinion alone? Or will you compromise in order to maintain some favor for me? That's why we need this topic. Um, 
we are assaulted outside the church. We're assaulted by this temptation inside the church and within our own hearts. Next question. Is it always wrong to please people? This is an important place to start because I don't want us to go on the other extreme where we're guilty of the sin of indifference. I really don't care about people whatsoever. And that's not what we are saying this morning. When should we be concerned with pleasing people? The, the Bible's clear. There's times when we do. So without looking at your outline, if you've not done so already, um, it's a danger of passing outlines. Any thoughts? When does the Bible command us to please people? Um, I think, like, if you're working, like, you want to be pleasing Excellent. to your boss. Or yep. Excellent. Yep. Very good. Your authority. And that, that's one of the points here. Yes, we, we don't want to just be casual. If you don't uh, give a rip about doing a good job and your, your boss being satisfied in your labor, uh, you have an issue. Um, yep. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Sacrificially laying our not, lives down for the good of others. Yep. Yeah. Uh, we're to honor our parents. Good. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Exodus 20, um, Ephesians 6. Right. What are my parents? What else? I always teach my parents. I mean, I desire to teach my best friend. Yes. Very good. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 7. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yep. And look down on, uh, I'll just put these four up because you are hitting them all. Number two, husbands are to please, please their wives, the wives their husbands. Paul says that. Um, he talks about the single man, he's free. He can put all of his energy and desires into pleasing the Lord, but the married man or the married woman, they need to be devoting their time to pleasing their spouse. That's a good thing. If you don't do that, if you neglect the well-being and the desires, just genuine desires for good things of your spouse, you're in sin. Um, number three, uh, we've already mentioned employers, government, parents, church leaders. What else? Number one, we must please believers and unbelievers for their salvation or edification. The focus is on the fact that they are built up. Let me just show you uh, two passages. Go to Romans 15 really quick. We're going to be uh, thumbing around a lot this morning in different passages. Romans 15. Here we get some straightforward terminology uh, from Paul. Just as our topic. Romans 15, 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Look at this. Let each of us please his neighbor. Seek the pleasure of his neighbor, what? For his good. What is his good? To build him up. Build him up in Christ. Help him pursue Christ likeness. We are to give up our preferences, even things that um, we do not feel are sin issues in order not to make others stumble, right? We must also um, do this for unbelievers. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 9 about not putting an unnecessary hindrance in front of people. The, the, the point is not that you want to remove the stumbling stone of the gospel. You want to remove every other stumbling so that the only stumbling left is the gospel, the call to repentance, what Christ demands. You don't want other things to get in the way. So we should please people, and uh, we can spend a lot of time on this point, um, but I think uh, it is um, 
pretty self-explanatory, and I want to get on to the, the next things. One more thing I'll say is number four, we should have a good name. How is that um, not contradictory to what we were saying about sinful self-approval? We're going to talk about that event. What is sinful self-seeking, um, seeking the pleasures of men? What does it mean to want a good name? Proverbs 22.1 says a good name is more to be prized than great riches and favor better than um, better than riches. So what do you think? What does it mean to have a good name and reputation? And why is that a good thing to pursue? And we all bear Christ's name. Good. We are representatives of, of Christ and so goes our name. We re- reflect him in, in some extent. Yep. You should be concerned. Good. What else? I may see your good works and glorify the Father. Good. Yep. Ultimately, it's not about bringing attention to me, but what? Reflecting praise to, to God. Good. What else? You see the qualification of the elders as well, that there's supposed to be a good reputation, not only with the church, but also outside the church. Very good. Yep. It's in Titus 2. Uh, talks about Timothy, a model of good works. So they won't have anything to, to accuse you of. They're, they're going to be looking for stuff. In the end, they, they're not going to have something to grab onto to legitimately hold you to. So. I was just saying the verse that talks about how Jesus grew in mm-hmm. wisdom, but in favor with God yeah. and man. Yep. Very good. Very good. Amen. So we should be concerned about these things. Four areas, and there's probably a few more. Um, we are not saying that you should be indifferent um, to the opinions of people and pleasing people. But now the question naturally comes... At what point does pleasing people become a sin? What do you think? At what point does it become a sin? When your actions dictate what God wants to do. Good. Very good. Yep. Spend a good hunk of time on that. Your actions are uh, limiting your obedience to to Christ. Your your desires. Good. What else? Contradicts God's word. Good. Yep. Mm-hmm. Will they descend to maintain the, the pleasure? Good. What else? Yep. Yep. Man subtly takes the place of, of God in our affections and our thoughts. Look how Lou Priolo um, says it here. He says, There is a time and place to please all sorts of men. It is our motive that dictates the rightness or wrongness of such people pleasing. The question to ask yourself are these. Do I do it for selfish reasons to cause them to think better of me? Or do I do it out of love, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many? You see, biblical uh, man-pleasing, people-pleasing is selfless. The focus is on their well-being, their conversion, their being built up, pleasing my spouse, whatever it is, honoring those in authority over me. It's selfless. The focus on the well-being of another while remaining in line with God's commands. That's an important feature. Unbiblical people-pleasing is all about protecting and promoting myself at the expense of the well-being of others and the commands of God. Um, It's a sin when we become to be preoccupied with man's approval more than God's approval. And it's that more than that is so important. Think about it like this. 
Um, I know this has certainly been a temptation in my life, and I think with many, you are always sort of inwardly calculating. You're in a conversation with somebody. You're always thinking, analyzing every facial expression, every word they say, considering, man, what, what are they thinking about me? It's, it's a preoccupation, an inordinate desire. Yes, we should be concerned about having a good reputation and a good name, but it subtly begins to take the place of God. It begins to perform before people rather than living faithfully under God's smile. It craves being seen by people more than it craves being seen by God. It rejoices when people see and approve, but it is discouraged when only God sees and approves. It is discontent if only God is pleased while there be some that remain unpleased. That is when we've slipped into the sin of people-pleasing. So what is at the heart of this sin of people-pleasing? There's a couple of other things on your outline. What is at the heart of this uh, sin of people-pleasing? I think uh, Cameron uh, said it well. It is the sin of idolatry. Listen to Richard Baxter. What makes it so sinful? It turneth our chief observance and care and labor and pleasure and grief into this human fleshly channel and maketh all that to be but human in our hearts and lives, which objectively should be divine. In other words, it is the sin of idolatry. It is putting something else in the place of God. It is that more than that is so important. It is as with most of our idols, an inordinate affection for good things that has taken the place of God. Idolatry is evil because it is giving to something or someone what belongs to God alone. But it is also evil, and God also hates it because it belittles God, right? That's what idolatry does. It belittles God, especially fearing men more than God, places God in subservience to his creation, as though he were a small thing, as though he were smaller than he really is, even smaller than puny man. That's why it's so evil. It's a slap in God's Thanks. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah is beginning his prophecy by pounding away at the idolatry of the people. Look at how this chapter ends. It's condemning Israel for their idolatry, for rejecting the Lord. He says that the Lord has a day against all that's proud and lifted up. The Lord will have no competitors, no rivals, none that are competing for, with him for supremacy. But look how he ends in verse 22. Stop regarding man. Stop trusting, placing all your focus, all your emphasis, all your weight on man, people. Why? In Whose nostrils is breath? For of what account is he? He's puny. He's frail. He's finite. He's weak. And you're going to fear him more than God? What an assault to, to God's name and his reputation and his character. You see what idolatry does? 
And that's why God hates it, and that's why we ought to hate it. It is an important, serious sin. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want to take us through um, four ways. This is a serious, dangerous um, sin. And uh, lucky for you, you only get 40 minutes of this. I had a whole week of this. It's, it's brutal. It beats you up. And the, the, the point is not so that we would wallow in our, our guilt. But we'd run to Christ. And we're going to see that um, at the end. But it's also that we grow. That we identify these idols, put them to death. Where is it in my life? So I'm going to throw a whole bunch of, try to be as specific, practical as possible, and just look. Where is it in my life? I want to identify it. I want to put it to death. And then the weeks ahead, we'll, we'll talk about just how you can do that. The point, the, these four points, there's going to be overlap between them. The point is not that they're all different. They certainly overlap in many ways. I just want to pick up sort of this this, this jewel and look at it from, from all angles and uh, see how it is working in our lives. So number one, it is sinful and dangerous because it takes you from the work of God. Obedience to God is limited and controlled by man's approval. And um, several of you said that. What is ordering your life is not God. It's not his word, not his favor, but obedience to God is being limited only in so far as favor with man is not threatened. That's my greatest master. It takes us from our duty as servants of Christ. Look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 10, Paul's talking about the, uh, the gospel he's preaching. It's quite opposed, especially by the Judaizers. Um, not popular. He says, for verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I seeking to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant, a slave of Christ. We're servants. That's our identity. We have no rights. We belong to Christ. We're his possession. He bought us. The cravings of approval of men take us away from that identity. It takes us away from that service. What belongs to him, we're being distracted. It will either hinder our service or it will cost me the favor of men, which is it. In other words, you can't serve two masters. That's what Jesus says, right? It will cost you one or the other. It will cost you service to Christ, or it will cost you favor of men, which will you choose. The cravings for approval lures us away from God's service to service of ourselves through the praises of others. So why? Why are these necessarily at odds with each other? What are... Um, in what ways do they practically work themselves out in our lives? So, um, before you look there, just throw, throw out a few that, that you think of. So, how, how do you see this in, in your life of 
Um, it's subtle. It's not always in those places where I'm in the public square and being told, affirm homosexuality or we're going to cancel you. It might come to that. There's many subtle ways that it, that it happens in our, in our lives. Um, can you think of any? Any examples? Obedience to Christ is being limited somehow by cravings to serve people. Yeah. Not saying something when you know you need to. Good. Yep. or offending them if, if you call them out for what they're, what they're doing. It's hard. Yeah, it's very subtle. I think it's most subtle in my life where it is a legitimate area mm-hmm. where, like, with my boss, like, mm-hmm. a desire to please my boss, but if I do get that affirmation, then that strokes my pride, and then I want more of that. Yeah. And so it's a legitimate area, but then it becomes sinful because I'm seeking an inordinate yeah. praise for, yeah. uh, it, from that avenue. And and it's often good and innocent and neutral, but it's as we dwell on it and then start to crave it, and then it starts producing even more sinful um, desires. It's that preoccupation. It's good. What else? You know, there's subtle ways you see it in your life, or you see how it could could happen? to dominate and it leads to sin and it leads to a wrong focus and end up using people right I'm no longer able to selflessly serve them they're, they're being used um, for me that's good Mr. Ryder you got something well I think of the times when as, as a prophet liberty I had to had to uh, uh, look for promotions and what do I write down to pick you know, to, to get that next level of promotion there's a certain amount of self-aggrandizement yeah. in this whole process. We live in a society that demands yes. this kind of, you present your credentials, you present your your abilities, you... Yep. Self-promotion is a virtue. I, yep. Years ago, I was, I, I got a, I, I was applying for a job, and this lady that suggested it to me, or tried to coach me, she said, embellish a little bit, embellish, <laughs> so that you get the approval. Yeah. We live in a world that demands a lot of self-aggrandizement to, to, to move on. And that's in every field, I think. It's, it's good. It comes right down to where, you know, where the rubber hits the road. It does. Yep, so those are helpful. And there's um, many more. Let me give you a few that I, that I jotted down here. You hit on a number of them. Make compromises in small areas. Notice that small areas of disobedience because of the threat of the greatness of what I may lose, disapproval. Richard Baxter says, one truth of God and the smallest duty 
must be preferred before the pleasing in favor of all the men of the world. It's amazing. The English reformers um, burned at the stake for the Lord's Supper. Because <laughs> uh, that big of an issue, we'd say that's a small area of doctrinal um, clarity. Maybe. But still obedience to God. It was actually a gospel issue for them. One truth of God, the smallest duty. Number two, I do not confront sin or error in someone around me for fear of dis rejection or disfavor. Somebody you said that. I do not get into close relationships with other believers for fear that I will have to open up and the real me will be known and my sin, weakness, and areas of growth will be uncovered. I do not reach out for help for fear of what others will think about me. I do not work through disagreements with others or discuss hard topics for fear that I might be shown to have not known something or to be weak and not totally correct. So we live in an age of controversy. It's because no one wants to dialogue. No one wants to talk and be humble and admit they are might not know everything. No one wants to think critically and rigorously. I might expose what I don't know. Number six, I do not respond biblically to conflict. I don't initiate confession if I'm the one that has sinned. Or I do not initiate reconciliation with someone that has sinned against me. Number seven, I am embarrassed to be identified publicly and labeled as a Christian who is a zealot, fanatic, extremist, polish up the sharp edges of the gospel, or I don't even share the gospel. And all of these and many more Obedience to Christ in some ways being limited by stronger approval for the praise of the people. At that point, there's discussing hard topics with someone that says they don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You still do out of love and not becoming the way you're going. Like sure. Quite often become. Yep. Yeah, I, what I'm trying to get at there is not that we are overbearing or forcing ourselves on others, but. Um, I guess sort of pushing against sort of the social media culture. Like I, yeah, I read two blog posts on it, and, and then somebody you know made another post, and I think I got the issue pretty much wrapped up, and don't want to sort of press into that. And more specifically, like witnessing to somebody, okay, and start bringing up the topic of religion and the gospel. So I don't, I don't, that's a private issue. I don't feel like talking. About. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think in those situations, it, it requires much wisdom and, and grace, and um, you know, you might. Just affirm their good love for them. I love you and concerned about you. This is something that's on my heart. And if you'd ever like to talk about it, I would love to. And um, yeah, sometimes you, you would just use wisdom to find ways, creative ways to, to bring it to bear. And if they continue to blow up and continue to push you off and reject you, Proverbs says, don't correct a scoffer. Uh, you let them go until the Lord humbles them and, and brings them. So um, I'd say there's no hard and fast answer to that. Just requires wisdom and, and grace and patience and trust the Lord's sovereignty. Uh, like he'll he'll wake him up, but yeah, you'll be faithful. Way, if there's a way to serve that person. Yeah. You have to show them love, show them grace, and then as you have opportunities. You don't have to I think we get the idea that I have to give the entire gospel right at this moment. You don't. Um, if you can, that's great, but truths, just little truths that you can bring about God to apply in that situation insofar as they'll hear. Be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks. Yep. Yep. That's right. It's good. 
So none of these are meant to mean that they're easy uh, issues or not, um, but it's that, that balance. So does that make sense? Does that answer? Well, number two, here's a quote from Thomas Watson. Uh, How many leagues distant from godliness are those who serve men who either for fear of punishment or hope for promotion comply with the simple commands of men who will put their conscience under any yoke and sail with any wind that blows profit. Number two, let me go quickly through these here. It is sinful and dangerous because it is enslaving and never ending. Richard Baxter says, what a task have man pleasers. They have as many masters as beholders. No wonder if it takes them off from the service of God. Lupriolo says, inordinate man pleasing, people pleasing, brings you into bondage by enslaving you to everyone whom you desire to please. So not only do their opinions control you, but there are an unending number of opinions out there. And if you, and you are bound to fail in many of them. If you please one, you will inevitably displease the other. Think how this works itself out. You serve in some capacity in the church, only to be critiqued by, by somebody for it. We should be humble and open to critique. But maybe you uh, did it as the best of your ability, you're still getting critiqued. You make a nice meal for your family, only to be t- told by a certain family member they don't like X, Y, and Z. You put forth all your effort at work only for for your boss to take notice of the one small detail you missed. You have a discipleship conversation with someone only to be accused of wrong motives. Richard Baxter again says, Many and many a time when I have had an hour or a day to spend, a multitude have everyone expected that I should have it spent with them. When I visit one, there are ten offended that I am not visiting them at the same hour. And so it goes. The point is that the pleasure of man, if it dominates our hearts, we will be very miserable people. (laughs) So what are some evidences that I am enslaved to the opinions of people and fearing their displeasure too much? Let me give you the three. Discouragement, dejection, anger when some are not pleased with our work, which was done in good conscience before the Lord. Two. Fretfulness, that there might be some people out there disappointed with us that I don't yet know about. Three, sensitivity and defensiveness at critique and constructive criticism. And then number four, I jotted this down, an inability to say no um, to the detriment of other duties, right? I think uh, Brad Bigney at the conference talked about his inability to just said yes to everybody. Well, what was deep down in there? Was a desire to... to Find the approval of man, and he was neglecting his family and all these other responsibilities. Look at number three. We're running out of time. It saps us the energy which ought to be spent on God's priorities. Your energies, um, emotional, physical, are spent on eye service. Ephesians 6.6 commands the slaves, um, or you could even just say employees, not to work for eye service. Primarily the sight of their master or their boss. You should be concerned about it. It's not what should dominate you. You might not be doing simple actions, but you can fall into the trap of doing what you're doing in order to be seen and get praise. The problem is the main focus is shifted from the Lord. Example, the people pleaser, in this case, will stay longer hours after work 
even though he doesn't have to in order to impress his boss while, reject, while neglecting other responsibilities at home. The guy will practice his basketball skills constantly to impress his coach, neglecting church or personal disciplines. A lady will spend more money than the budget can handle in order to be fashionable among her peers. None of these are bad things. They're all good things, right? But what happens? We are so devoted to the opinions of people, it saps our ability and resources and energy, which ought to be devoted to things of the Lord. It's a priority issue. Priolo says, If some perceive you to be inadequate in an area of life that God says is not a biblical inadequacy, not a sin, you will hasten to change it at any expense, though you know the Lord would rather have you invest your time and effort in changing those things that are offensive to him. Number four. We'll finish here. Because it is the sin of a hypocrite. Go to Matthew chapter 6. It works itself out in two ways, by commission and omission. Let me show you the commission, Matthew chapter 6. Verse 1, beware of practicing your righteous deeds before others to be seen by them. There's the motivation, to be seen. He says that again in verse 2, 5, 16. That's your motivation, I want to be seen. You should be doing righteous works, but what's the motivation? To be seen. It's not necessarily because you love God or righteousness, it's because of the praises you can get. It's hypocrisy. You're pretending to be a lover of God and a lover of righteousness, but you're a lover of self. It works this way out in, in two ways. Believers can act this way, and the tragedy is they lose their reward. They settle for a cheap reward. What do they get? Look at verse 5. That they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've already received their reward. What a cheap reward. The praises of puny men who are going to die. And you settle for that. And you give up the approval in favor of your father. It's also the case with unbelievers. They spend their lives pretending to be a lover of God, a lover of his word, his people. But having no affection for these things in their heart, they only do it to be counted religious and godly of those around them. Listen to Richard Baxter. Their happiness will be to lie in hell and remember that they were well spoken of on earth, and that once they were counted religious, learned, wise, and honorable, and to remember that they preferred this reward before everlasting happiness with Christ. If this be not gained, your labor is all lost, which you lay out in hunting for applause. If this be enough to spend your time for and to neglect your God for and to lose your souls for, rejoice then in the hypocrite's reward. <laughs> Puritans don't mince words. It also works its way out in commission. Omission, I mean. Commission then omission. Not only do I do things in order to be seen, I neglect things which will go unseen. For them... For these people, the only thing that is valuable is if others see it, not if it's seen by God alone. One important way in which this omission works its way out is in the sins we choose to fight. And I will end here. I've got a couple minutes. In which we choose to make peace with. External conduct and sinful actions are worked on and reined in, but the internal source of those, the thoughts, the desires, the unbelief is not dealt with. 
A man given to outbursts of anger simply holds it in and curses people in his heart. The woman given to gossip stops only to hold in evil suspicions about others in her heart. You see? John Owen speaks of this kind of deception regarding putting those sins to death which disquiet the soul, which disturb your conscience. And it works out the same in this way. He says that it evidences not so much a hate for sin, but a dislike for the discomfort. Or in this case, you could say a dislike for my reputation, what these sins do to me. It has nothing to do with whether you hate that sin or not. If you did, you would be going after it in every area of your life. Listen to John Owen here, and we'll finish. Now it is certain that that which I speak proceeds from self-love. You set yourself with all diligence and earnestness to mortify such a lust or sin. What is the reason of it? It disquiets you. It's taken away your peace. It fills your heart with sorrow and trouble and fear. You have no rest because of it. Yea, but friend, you've neglected prayer or reading. You have been vain and loose in your conversation and other things that have not been of the same nature with that lust wherewith you are perplexed. These are no less sins and evils than those under which you groan. Jesus bled for them also. Why do you not set yourself against them also? If you hate sin as sin, every evil way, you would be no less watchful against everything that grieves and disquiets the Spirit of God than against everything that grieves and disquiets your own soul. Here's the key sentence. It is evident you contend against sin merely because of your trouble by it. Or we could substitute, it is evident you are controlled, you're contend against sin merely because of how it affects people's perception of it. And we battle with this, guys. It's deep in us. So be looking, be, be examining your hearts. Luke 11, you can go read there. Jesus points it out to the Pharisees. The weightier matters of the law they neglect. They, they, the, the small ones, the light ones, they should do it. That's all they do because they're seen. At the heart level, they... <clears throat> so if you want to avoid being a hypocrite and receiving a hypocrite's reward, if you want to make sure your energies are directed entirely to the Lord's service, if you want to be free from never-ending never enslavement that comes from serving people, if you want your obedience to God to be unhindered, then be mortifying the sin of man-pleasing. And next week, we're not next week, we're not going to be here. Um, two weeks, we will talk about how. How do I do that? What truths do I need to know? And how do I practically go after this in my life? Um, so we don't have time. Um, let me just encourage you guys. If you're as beat up after this as I was, Christ died um, for sinners. Christ never lived for the pleasures of men. He fulfilled the law of God perfectly on your behalf. He always did what pleases the Father. Rest in him. You're bankrupt. Run to him. Depend on him. Trust his righteousness and his atonement. And then because of that, get to war. By his truth, putting these things to death. It's important. So any questions, comments, it is 1018. I would love to talk afterwards. Please come. If you want... Richard Baxter and have your face torn off in the weeks ahead. Come get it. It's really good. I'll make more copies in the future. Um, so let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's convicting power and its ability to heal at the same time. Help us uh, prepare us for the service to come in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, you are.